the Letterman, the Supremes, the Beatles, 98 Degrees, are all examples of famous quartets. You see, a quartet is a musical group consisting of four members. It's music in four-part harmony, sopranos and altos and tenors and bass. And there are different types of quartets. There's the string quartet, the barbershop quartet, even a gospel quartet. And speaking of gospel quartets, that's what we have here in the first four books of the New Testament, the gospel quartet. One beautiful song written by a single composer, the Holy Spirit, in a four-part harmony. God used all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to sing the same song, but to sing it in various harmonizing parts. You see, it's as if the Holy Spirit film crew set up four different camera angles, four different cameras at each corner of the intersection. The Gospels cover the same story, the same events, the same person, but from four different perspectives. Mark, you see, wrote with an emphasis on the actions of Jesus. Compared to the other Gospels, Mark has very little dialogue. It was geared to appeal to action-oriented Romans. Luke wrote to the Greeks. The philosophers in Athens had a lofty view of mankind, and thus Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He depicts Jesus as the perfect human being, whereas John wrote with the whole world in mind. He turns the spotlight on the deity of our Lord. Jesus was God, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of the world. And Matthew wrote to the Hebrews. Matthew was a Jew who wrote to Jews addressing Jewish concerns. The gospel of Matthew is a bridge that connects the Old Testament promises with New Testament premises. Nine times, Matthew will use the phrase, it is written, referring to the Old Testament. Fourteen times, he writes, that which was spoken, again, referring to the Old Testament. In fact, there are 129 quotations or allusions to the Old Testament in the pages of Matthew's gospel. The first gospel makes it clear that the Messiah of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament are one and the same person. Baseball fans know that if you're going to score a run, you've got to touch all four bases. And neither can you fully understand the ministry of Jesus without all four Gospels. You see, Jesus is the action-oriented servant, the servant of God, man's mar Mark's man of action. Luke says that he's the man that all men, men were meant to be. According to John, he's more than a man. He's God in the flesh. And Matthew reminds us that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Understand the four Gospels and you'll want to follow Jesus, trust Jesus, worship Jesus, and submit to Jesus. Now, in typical Jewish fashion, both Gospels begin with a genealogy. Both the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospels of Luke. But the genealogies in these two books are different. Matthew traces the family tree of Jesus through the lineage of Joseph while most scholars agree that Luke traces the genealogy through Mary. Notice how in verse 16, here in Matthew chapter 1, notice how Matthew is careful to note that Jesus was born of Mary, not Joseph. The first 15 verses tell us that fathers begat sons,
but not when we get to Joseph. It wasn't Joseph who begot Jesus. Rather, we're told, verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Jesus was virgin-born, thus bypassing the inherent sin of the first man, Adam. Now, the promises of salvation were made to the Hebrews. And this genealogy proves that Jesus was a Hebrew. God promised a Savior to Abraham. And to King David, he promised a Messiah, or a king who would rule the earth forever and ever. Joseph and Mary both descended from both Abraham and David. Through Jesus' foster father, Joseph, he inherited the royal right to David's throne, and he inherited the racial right through his birth mother, Mary. The parents that God picked out for Jesus covered all the bases. And here's an important point. Since the Jewish Jewish genealogies were all stored in the temple, and since the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., it's impossible then for anyone living after 70 A.D. to produce a proper proof of a Messianic pedigree. That means that Jesus is not only the Messiah, He is the only person who can be. In Genesis chapter 5, when you read Adam's genealogy, it's filled with the repeated phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. That was life in Adam's family. But in Jesus' genealogy, It's filled with the word begot. It sets the tone for the rest of the New Testament. Jesus came to bring a family that would experience life and life abundantly, new beginnings forever and ever. Notice, too, the five women here in Jesus' genealogy. We mentioned them this morning. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Their appearance in the genealogy conveys some important truths. First, a woman's name in a Jewish genealogy was highly unusual. Jewish culture was male-dominated. Women were considered second-class citizens, and yet Matthew sets the tone for the elevated status that Christianity will bring to women. Jesus and his followers revolutionized male and female relationships. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 sums it up. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Second, the appearance of the first four women demonstrate God's grace. Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. Ruth was a Gentile. Bathsheba was an adulteress. And yet God is communicating here a vital truth. Jesus came to add to his family people soiled by sin. He chooses the likes of these people to include in his genealogy. It's proof that the branches of his family tree are strong enough for sinners saved by grace. Aren't you glad? Chapter 1 not only provides us the genealogy of Jesus through his foster father, Joseph, but Matthew also records Joseph's account of the birth of Jesus. Now, to get today, the progression between engagement and marriage is twofold. A couple gets engaged, set a date, then they get married. But in Bible times, there were three steps. There was engagement, then there was the betrothal, And then there was the marriage. You see, the betrothed couple had taken their vows. They were legally bound toward each other. In fact, a certificate of divorce was required for separation. And yet the couple lived separately in separate houses at the time. Marriage's sexual pleasures were forbidden to the betrothed couple until they got married. And Joseph and Mary were betrothed 
when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. Now imagine Joseph's shock, his outrage. How could Mary betray him? How could Mary prove to be unfaithful? In fact, the law gave Joseph the right to stone Mary if he decided to, and I'm sure the thought crossed his mind, but he loved Mary. And so he decided to send her away quietly. Apparently, Joseph never believed Mary's story that the Father God, the Holy Spirit, was the one responsible for the conception and the miracle. And yet, who could, believe, who could blame Joseph for his doubts? I mean, what if a girl in our youth group turned up pregnant and with this sweet smile on her face told us that the child was the result of the Holy Spirit working in her life? Who would believe her? Not one of us would buy her story. That's why it took another miracle, a visit from an angel, to convince Joseph of the truth of Mary's explanation. Joseph's marriage to his dream girl was saved by a dream. In chapter 1, verse 20, the angel instructed Joseph to take Mary as his wife. And in verse 21, he says, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, what a wonderful name. It means Jehovah is salvation. Now, it's interesting that of all the gifts that God could have given us, that he chose to give us a savior. Someone might suggest that what we need most is an expert in terrorism. Someone who could help us solve our current crisis. Or maybe a peace negotiator. Oh, yes, that's what we need. Someone who can in the unrest all around the world, or a financial genius, someone that can get the economy back on track, or an environmentalist, someone who knows how to fuel industry while saving the earth from pollution. Or if you're a Braves fan right now, you might be praying for a home run hitter. But of all the needs that the human family possesses, the one that God decided to address was our need for a Savior. Someone who could save us from our sins. Guys, the ton of troubles that exist today are ultimately the result of one root problem. That's our sin. Above all, we need a Savior who can forgive us and who can bridge the gap between us and God. Rather than treat symptoms, God cut to the core of our problems. The gift that God chose to give mankind was a Savior. And His name is called Jesus. Verse 22 is another example of Matthew writing to his Hebrew audience. He informs us that Jesus' miracle birth was predicted by the Hebrew prophet 700 years in advance. He quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. There a virgin would conceive and his name would be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Guys, nearly 2,000 years ago, the miracle of all miracles occurred. God became a man. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. Chapter 2 and the visit of the wise men is usually associated with the birth of Jesus and remembered at Christmas. Most nativity scenes, in fact, depict the wise guys and the shepherds right there together. But that's not really accurate. The wise men's visit occurred several months after Jesus' birth. We learn from Luke that Jesus was born in a stable. 
But according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 here, by the time the wise men arrived on the scene, Joseph had moved his family into a house. Remember, too, Herod didn't order newborns to be killed, but children two years old and younger. Apparently, some time had elapsed between Jesus' birth and the events here in chapter 2. Also notice, we usually think of three wise men, probably because they brought with them three gifts. But nowhere does the Scripture say that there were just three magi. In fact, when their caravan rides into Jerusalem looking for the Messiah, they create quite a stir among the people of Jerusalem. And I think three lone riders wouldn't have been enough to provoke that kind of a reaction. They probably wouldn't even have been noticed. These magi were Babylonian astrologers who studied the stars. They looked for supernatural signs in the sky. And one had appeared. A star in the east pointed to a location in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, the location of the Hebrew Messiah. Now, you remember Daniel had once served in the court of Babylon. And he had been numbered among these magi. I'm sure they had studied the prophecies in Daniel chapter 9. And they understood that the coming of the Messiah was near. In fact, another Babylonian astrologer, a soothsayer named Balaam, also saw this star. But he saw it years in advance in a vision. In Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam predicted, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, what this star actually was, we're not sure. Famed astronomer Johannes Kepler theorized that it was a certain alignment of planets. That's a possibility. It could have been a comet or maybe some other celestial body. It could, though, have been supernatural, simply put in the heavens by God for this very moment. Perhaps, and I think probably, it was the Shekinah glory of God sent by him to point the way for the wise men. When these oriental visitors, though, reach Herod, They want to know where the king is born. And he calls for the theologians who search the scriptures and find Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which predicted that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. The wise men depart for Bethlehem and the star that they followed stood over the exact building that housed Jesus. Imagine this scene. A humble peasant couple in a rented house entertaining these powerful world rulers, these oriental dignitaries. What looked stranger were these noblemen bowing before a bassinet, worshiping, in essence, a toddler. And they presented to Jesus gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, and myrrh, an embalming fluid for a man who was born to die. Notice, too, the three reactions of Jesus in the story of the wise men. First, you'll see antagonism. A paranoid Herod hated the thought of a rival king. He hated Jesus. He wanted to kill him. Notice too, though, the ambivalence of the Jewish scholars. They knew Jesus' whereabouts. They had found the prophecy in Micah, but they never came to worship him. They were apathetic. And then notice third, adoration. It was the wise men who came and bowed and worshipped Jesus. You know, the same three attitudes toward Jesus can be found in any group of people. There are those who hate him. There are others who simply ignore him. But then there are some 
the wise men and women who bow before him and worship him. History tells us that King Herod was a little man with a big ego. Standing just four foot four, he suffered an extreme inferiority complex. You can understand why. It made him a paranoid person. And once he suspected that this king had been born, he, he asked these wise men to tell him the location so he could come back and worship him. Of course, that wasn't his motive. He wanted to kill Jesus there in Bethlehem. History tells us that once Herod suspected his wife and his three sons of plotting his overthrow, and he had his own family executed as a result. Caesar Augustus says it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. That was the wickedness of King Herod. It's little wonder that Herod ordered the execution of these Bethlehem toddlers. Thanks to Herod, 16 years later, Bethlehem High School graduated very few students that year. Jeremiah chapter 31 predicts Herod's terrorism. A voice was heard in Ramah, or another name for Bethlehem. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jesus' life might have been threatened if it hadn't been for another angelic visitation. Again, an angel came to Joseph and revealed what was going on. And Joseph obeyed his instruction and took his family to Egypt. It reminds me of a little girl who brought home a picture that she had painted at Sunday school. Well, since it was Christmas time, the picture was supposed to be a nativity scene. Instead, she had drawn this picture of a few people sitting on board a 757 jet airplane. That's when she explained to her mom, Mom, that's Pontius the pilot in the front seat. And that's Joseph and Mary behind them. And that little short fat man in the back, that's round John Virgin. But the mother asked, Honey, why are they all in an airplane? And that's when the little girl explained, Well, Mom, this is the flight into Egypt. According to Jewish historian Josephus, a few months after Herod's despicable act of killing these children, the Lord brought judgment on this evil tyrant. Herod contracted a fever as well as some other symptoms. And I'm going to quote from you. I'm just going to read to you from Josephus. He writes, An intolerable itching over all the surface of his body, continual pains in his colon, tumors on his feet, and an inflammation of the abdomen, and a putrefaction of his privy member that produced worms. Now, I'm sure the men here tonight will agree that a putrefaction of your privy member... (laughs) Worms in the old privy member... (laughs) Sounds like some severe suffering indeed. Hey, in the end, old Herod got what he deserved. The death of Herod and another angelic visitation let Joseph know that it was time to return to Israel. And he and his family settled in the Galilean village of Nazareth. When Billy Graham comes to a town for a citywide crusade, 
The meetings usually run for a few days. Billy Graham is usually in town for about a week. But what you might not know is that his organization sends an advance man who comes to town a year ahead of time to make arrangements. And Jesus, too, had his advance man, his forerunner. Chapter 3 introduces to us a bizarre character, John the Baptizer. John was a wild man. He was sort of an outdoorsman, sort of a biblical Paul Bunyan. You might could call him the original hippie. He wore a camel skin coat and a leather belt, and he was into organic food. He always had some trail mix in his pocket, some locusts and wild honey. Tradition says that John's coat was the actual mantle that had been worn by the prophet Elijah that it had been stored in the temple and it had been retrieved by his father, Zechariah the priest. When the angel told Zechariah of the birth of his son, the angel said that John would come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And it's interesting that John begins preaching near the spot that Elijah was taken up to heaven on the banks of the Jordan River. And notice John's message, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In essence, John came saying, turn from your sin and prepare for the Savior. John not only preached, but he baptized. And his baptism was a new practice. In Judaism, Gentiles were converted. Gentiles who were converted were baptism, but never Jews. And yet John used baptism to announce a person's intentions to turn from their sin and follow God. And Jews were flocking to see John. They were coming out in droves to hear his message. As one commentator writes, without gimmicks or gadgets, without a mailing list or even a miracle, the crowds flocked to John. What he did possess was a dedicated life, a humble attitude, a message from God and the power of the Spirit. The church today could learn from John's example. Indeed. Whenever the Holy Spirit does a work, you'll find that there will be religious authorities who will want to come out and take control of that work. And this is why the Jewish leaders come out to see John. Sadducees were the liberals. Pharisees were the legalists. But hey, they were all hypocrites. And in verse 7, John gives them a warm welcome. He says, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Guys, understand, repentance is more than remorse. It's more than simply feeling sorry for our sin. It's more than crocodile tears. True repentance is a desire to change. It's the willingness to rearrange my life in ways that will prevent me from sinning again. True repentance involves reacquiring God's power restructuring my time, renewing my thoughts, reworking my schedule perhaps, reassessing my friends, recruiting some accountability in my life. John says if we sincerely repent, there will be fruits or evidence of that repentance. It reminds me of the Jewish man who moved into a strictly Catholic neighborhood. And every Friday, this man drove the Jews, uh, drove the Catholics crazy. While they were trying to limit their diet to fish on that Friday, the Jewish man was in his backyard grilling delicious-smelling steaks. 
I mean, the aroma just wafted through the neighborhood. Well, the Catholics decided they needed to convert this Jew. And so after many months and great effort, they succeeded. The Jew was taken to the priest who sprinkled him with holy water and said, born a Jew, raised a Jew, now a Catholic. Well, the Catholics, they were ecstatic. Now they could eat fish without those tempting aromas of steak, you know, just sort of sailing through their neighborhood. But the next Friday, again, the scent of steak drifted through the neighborhood. And the Catholics, they rushed to the Jewish man's house to remind him of his Catholic diet. And there they found him over his grill with these sizzling steaks, with a knife in one hand and with a bottle of water in the other. And there he was sprinkling water on the meat saying, born a cow, raised a cow, now a fish. (laughs) My point is, is that true repentance will show evidence of real change. There'll be some changes if you've truly repented. There's a problem if it's the same old, same old after you've turned to Jesus and been baptized. That's why John knew that water baptism was only the first step. He says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John showed people their need to change, but he was powerless to effect those changes. The change agent is the Holy Spirit. You see, John could baptize with water, but only Jesus can baptize with the Holy Spirit. John paved the way, but John was not the way. Jesus was the way, and it is Jesus who can fill us and empower us with the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm convinced that there are too many people today who only know the baptism of John. They come to church. They're convicted of sin. They want to change. They leave with the determination to resist temptation and walk in victory. They turn from sin. But as soon as they do, Satan is powerful. And his temptations are strong. And it doesn't take long before Satan lures them right back in to the same old, same old. You see, Satan has them on a string. They repeatedly show remorse, but they can't break free. You see, here's the problem. It is hard to turn from a temptation and not turn back unless I can turn to something more powerful than that temptation. And this is why we need to be baptized and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to flood us with His love and His joy and His peace and His power. Things that are stronger than the lures of Satan. It's when I get caught up in the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's when I don't have time to return to sin. That's when Satan has no more hold on me. That's when I can walk in victory. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, recount the baptism of Jesus by John at the Jordan River. And this was a crucial event in the life and ministry of Jesus for several reasons. For one, you'll notice that there's a 30-plus year gap between chapters 2 and chapters 3. You see, the Gospels cover the events surrounding Jesus' birth and the events surrounding the last three and a half years of his life. But what happened in between? What happened before he arrived at the Jordan River? 
In one sense, we have no idea. We don't know where he went to school. We don't know the identity of his friends. We don't know any part-time jobs he might have had. We don't know any of the places that he visited. All are unknowns to us. But in another sense, we know exactly what Jesus did in those 30-plus silent years. For at his baptism, the Father spoke from heaven and said these words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That means that whatever Jesus did, wherever he went, whatever he said, he did only those things that pleased his Father in heaven. In other words, there was no sin found in Jesus Christ. When Jesus asked John to baptize him, verse 14 tells us that John was reluctant. He felt unworthy. And why did Jesus need to be baptized since he had never sinned? John said, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Understand, Jesus was baptized for three reasons. To reveal, to relate, and to reaffirm. His baptism revealed to the crowd that yes, he was the true Messiah. I mean, the Father spoke from heaven so that all could hear. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove. People heard the voice. They saw the dove. Heaven had spoken. It was a powerful testimony. It revealed to the crowd that Jesus was the Messiah. His baptism was also a way, though, for Jesus to relate to those who would follow him. We're baptized to identify with Jesus. But he, in turn, is baptized to identify with us. And lastly, Jesus' baptism reaffirmed his own identity. There is a debate among theologians as to when Jesus became conscious of his deity, that he was God. I believe that Jesus somehow knew from his mother's womb his true nature. But it was at his baptism, I believe, that it was affirmed to him in an undeniable way. Jesus' baptism was his final preparation for his ministry, which leads us to chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it's important to realize this is not a surprise attack. Satan didn't orchestrate this encounter. Jesus was being led by the Spirit. You know, often when we encounter temptation, we assume we made a wrong turn somewhere along the way, but not necessarily. God uses temptation to test us and to toughen us and to tune up our faith. It's not Satan. It's the Holy Spirit who calls the shots when we're tempted. When the devil devil comes to tempt you, the first thing you need to do is remind yourself that you belong to Jesus. And that's what Jesus does here. What's the first temptation that Satan throws at Jesus? What is it? No, it's not turn these stones into bread. That's not the first temptation. Look closely at what Satan says to him in verse 3. If you are the Son of God. He prefaces the next temptation in verse 6 the same way. In other words, his first temptation is this. He tries to get Jesus to doubt his identity. And in an attempt to prove it, make a mistake. This is why Jesus' baptism was pivotal preparation. God affirmed Jesus' identity 
just prior to this temptation. You see, I'm convinced this is Satan's first line of attack on me and you. If the devil can bring into question our relationship with God, if he can get us to doubt who we are in Christ, he can cut off our supply line to God, he can cut off our communication with headquarters. But if we know we are God's kid, then we can stand strong. We can trust in God and we can draw upon His strength for our need. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us what makes the world go round. It's up here on the screen. John says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here are the three universal temptations that Satan uses on all men and women. As a matter of fact, be ready, because he's going to use one of these temptations on you this week, I guarantee it. First, the lust of the flesh. The desire to feel great. Next, the lust of the eyes. The desire to look great. And third, the pride of life. The desire to be great. Every temptation of Satan appeals along one of these three lines. Oh, feel great. Oh, you can look great. No, you can be great. Hey, turn these stones to bread. What's that? Right now, you're hungry, Jesus. But you can feel great. You can get you something to eat right here. Oh, throw yourself off the temple. Let the angels catch you before you hit the ground. Jesus, you'll look great as those angels kind of swoop in and just kind of catch you right before you hit. Everybody will know you. You'll be famous. Then he says, bow to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. What's that? Oh, you'll be great. You'll be powerful. People will. I mean, you'll, you'll have the kingdoms of the world at your disposal. Rather than yield to the temptation to feel great or to look great or to be great, instead Jesus chose to seek God and to serve God and to worship God. Catch this. Jesus put the spiritual above the physical. Turn these stones to bread, Jesus said. No way, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Spiritual, you can't meet a spiritual need with a material thing. The second thing, Jesus put the internal above the external. Rather than put on a show to prove himself, he was going to prove himself to be a child of God by the virtue of his character. And then the third thing, the temporal above the eternal. Hey, Jesus refused that. Rather than bow and worship Satan in order to get the kingdoms of the world now, he waited. He knew that if he was obedient to the Father, the Father would reward him with those same blessings and much more. And notice the chief weapon that Jesus used against Satan three times. Verse 4, verse 7, verse 10. Jesus quotes Scripture. He pulls the sword of the Spirit out of its sheath and he slays the devil with God's written word. Guys, the Bible is a powerful weapon against Satan. Study it, apply it, and use it against the devil. I love this story over in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's the story of Eleazar, the son of Dodo. But this Eleazar was far from being a Dodo. He was one of David's mighty men. 
And we're told in verse 9 and 10, Eleazar arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. In other words, Eleazar clutched his sword so tightly that when he was done with the battle, you couldn't pry his hand off the handle. It was his vice grip on that sword that led to victory. Guys, if you want to win victories over temptation and over Satan, don't be a dodo. Be like the son of dodo. Get a grip on God's word. A vice grip is needed for victory. Verse 13 of chapter 4 tells us that after his baptism in the Jordan by John, Jesus settled in the town of Capernaum, a little fishing village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. According to Matthew, even Jesus' choice of Capernaum as his headquarters there in Galilee was a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 had predicted that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali by the way of the sea would behold a great light. And for the next few years, they'll be at the hub of Jesus' miracles and teachings. Verse 12 tells us that John was now out of commission. He had been thrown into prison. And yet John had set the stage. Now Jesus takes up where John began. He even preaches the same message. Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verses 18 through 22, Jesus finds and calls his first disciples. First he calls Peter and Andrew while fishing. He calls out, follow me men and I'll make you fishers of men. Notice Jesus takes the natural occupation of these men and he gives it new and spiritual significance. You see, this is the way Jesus works in our lives. He redeems our ambitions. The talents that we've learned, the interests that we've developed, he redeems those things and he rechannels them in an eternal direction. If you're a musician, he'll call you to be a musician for him. If you're a gardener, if you're an athlete, Jesus will find some way to employ your background and your talents and your skills and your interests, then expand on them and use them for his glory. He took fishermen and he made them fishers of men. It's interesting, though, he also calls James and John. Notice he calls Peter and Andrew while fishing. But when he finds James and John, they are mending their nets. Could it be that Jesus will make them menders of men? It's true. Peter was an evangelist, a fisher of men. But John was more a pastor. He was known as the apostle of love. His letters encouraged the church to grow spiritually, to love one another. John was more a mender of men. Jesus calls both fishers of men and menders of men. The end of chapter 4 summarizes Jesus' ministry and his growing popularity at the time. Verse 24 tells us, And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. The cities mentioned here constituted a hundred mile radius. It took three days to get from Jerusalem to Capernaum, and yet people were willing to drive long distances to see Jesus. 
Remember that the next time you have to make a 45-minute drive to church. You're not the first. (laughs) People were willing to come those long distances to worship and to learn more about Jesus. And there we have the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. Now, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You just took a first bite tonight. Next week, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. The whole sermon, one night, chapters 5 through 7. So read that this week and come ready to study next week. Just a few announcements before we dismiss. Ladies retreat, October 19th and 20th. Ladies, you'll want to sign up for that. Hopefully you saw Bible scan notebooks out on both sides. If you didn't get one when you came in, maybe you can pick one up on your way out. And I hope everybody got a Bible scan study guide. If you didn't, we've got those for you as well, so you can pick those up too. May the Lord bless you.